Bat Force Radio. Bat Force Radio is rated M for mature. Or should that be immature? Hey guys, Dustin Wynn. Hey, this is Scott Snyder. This is Paul Dini. And you're listening to Bat Force Radio. And you're listening to Bat Force Radio. You're listening to Bat Force Radio. This is Kevin Conroy, the voice of Batman. And you're listening to Bat Force Radio, so stay tuned. Welcome back to Bat Force Radio, the DC Batman podcast with no limits. Happy Halloween, everybody. Uh, we have an extra special episode today. You'll see why in a second. Uh, real quick, we have Robin D. Cross in Canada. Hello. We've got uh, Legends of Lego Batman in California. Hello, gents. I'm uh, Bat Force Tom in California as well. And today is the fourth annual, that's right, the fourth annual Halloween Bat Force Spooktacular uh, with this gentleman, uh, you know him as a legend of the industry, both uh, the big two, multiple other uh, imprints. Um, he's worked on Batman, Dracula series, Red Rain, Bloodstorm, Crimson Mist. Uh, phenomenal work on Dead Man. Beautiful work on Swamp Thing. Um, Halloween classic of Kings of Fear, which came out a couple years ago, as you can see. I have it right there. Um, just, you know, an absolute gentleman, uh, a legend. We love him. Mr. Kelly Jones, welcome back. Thank you very much. That was a that was a very big intro to live up to. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you do it swimmingly. Like I said, um, you know, we it's I can't believe it's been four years of having you on every Halloween the past four yeah, years. Yeah, that went by fast, huh? Yeah, it did. Um, we uh, I think you know we love getting in the spirit of the season with you. Um, what better way than to do it with someone who's done so much work? that uh, is inspired by and also inspires the spooky season, right? Well, thank um, you. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of my season all, the, all year round. So uh, it's nice, actually, um, when everyone else starts getting on board at the same time. That is that is good. Yeah, we, uh, we put up a, a teaser of uh, some artwork of yours, and we just said uh, it's Kelly Jones season. And uh, one of the comments was, "It's always Kelly Jones season." So, <laughs> so that that uh, that gentleman was uh, very spot on there. He was. Um, so we, you know, to kind of give the the listeners um, to bring them up to speed a bit, we've had you on for four years in a row. Um, we delved into specifically your history with Batman as a character. Specifically, um, we talked a lot about Dead Man. We've uh, talked about um, Kings of Fear. I think right as that came out, we had yeah. you on. And we spoke about that in length, a couple of the other projects that you'd been on. We even had, I think, the last one that we did. Uh, if we were to clone Kelly Jones, what would be the mm-hmm. secret ingredients that we would need to make sure that there's a Kelly Jones for every generation? Um, so, you know, we've really gone and kind of checked out everything that you've done. Something that we combed through and we realized that we didn't really, uh, we haven't really explored, which is just baffling to me, is... Um, in order to get into the spirit of the holidays and also to get ready for you, uh, yes. we prepared with Frankenstein Alive Alive, I'm which is an absolutely phenomenal piece by uh, Steve Niles and Bernie Wrightson. Yep. And, uh, you know, Bernie um, passed before he could complete it. And the one guy he said that could do the job to finish it was you. And he 
personally thought that you would finish that job. So maybe, um, maybe starting with that, you know, what, what a phenomenal piece of art um, and work and to have you come on and bookend that. What was that like? Uh, biggest honor of my life. Wow. At, at bar none. Uh, and I've had a lot of what I think are some pretty significant honors, worked with some amazing people. <clears throat> but um, it isn't just that it was with Bernie, but it was with Bernie's life's work. And uh, when I was a kid, that was the guy who made me go from just, you know, occasionally reading comics to a fan of comics and specifically of the creators. He's the first guy, along with Len Wein, who I actually went back and saw who wrote what, who drew what. And his name was so bizarre to me, um, you know, but it fit perfectly. So right from the start, it was a ma it just a magical thing. Um, he also was the guy that I began to follow, you know, outside of comics. And obviously one of the big things he did was Frankenstein. But, you know, I collected his posters. I was a kid, so it cost a lot of money to me then. Mm -hmm. um, and at that point, uh, it transcended just I enjoyed it. It, like, meant something to me. Um, he was the guy that uh, created an atmosphere. Uh, that I was collecting to my life, though you don't know it just because you like stuff like uh, uh, Frankenstein movies or uh, the old night gallery series, uh, things like that. You start accruing horror things. I, and I was a big chicken. I mean, I generally watched horror films like that. So, <laughs> um, but I would read these things and watch this stuff and go live life normally and whatever. But Wrightson was the guy. And when it came to his comics, I mean, I'd never bought Warren comics, but I went and bought their stuff because Wrightson was in it. And that opened a whole new world. Uh, when Frankenstein started coming out in these large portfolios, uh, it was a huge deal. And I told him all this, you know, I had the chance to tell him all this. Wow. That um, it, he, because he did something that, that, I mean, there's tremendously great artists. What Wrightson did wasn't just genre. He could take one image, one cover, and there'd be a story in it. Not just a great image, not somebody jumping at you, not some action scene. But there'd be a story in it that had so much wonder to me, where you just look at him and look at him and you go, what, what? happened here i mean especially his old dc horror covers uh the rest of the book the rest of the comic was wonderful but i didn't if it was just the cover i was fine um and i told him all these things and i said boy that that's a lot more work than just a scary werewolf picture or something and he he said that uh you know, he he wasn't really thinking in terms of how we would all react. It was how he would. He wanted to be interested through the whole drawing. And that's that's one of those things that was happening to me. I, I was thinking that way, too. When, when I got to doing, uh, he had complimented me on 
the run of Batman covers I had done. And I'd said that's directly influenced. I'm not even talking how I drew. I'm saying that's directly influenced by this thing where you would tell stories within these images. And I said, because I didn't know really what was going on in a lot of those issues. Um, those books were kind of being done in advance. They hadn't been written yet. So they just generalized what they thought. And uh, so it, those kind of magical moments I got, I give a lot of credit to him. And I told him that he was a very humble man and he wouldn't accept that. But I refused to hear that. I said, you have to hear this because it's why I'm doing it. And it's any measure of success came from, from that. I remember when I, my first year going to college, I was very excited to take an art course uh, or art courses. And as you find when you're into this, they instantly reject illustrative art, certainly comic book art. And they, they're looking for some kind of fine middle distance modes of alienation thing, which is fine. I wasn't interested in that. Uh, but I did want to learn technique and whatnot. And I found that the fact that I was doing this kind of work really had prejudiced the instructors against me, one in particular. And I don't hold any animus or anything. Well, one time she had said how uh, it was a really debased form and she was taking me to task in front of the rest of the kids, which is fine. I'm a big boy and I can take it. So uh, I said, well, just give me a chance. Just let me bring something to show. You're thinking, I don't know what you're thinking in your head. I know what I'm looking at and you don't have the same frame of reference. So I, I didn't, I, I came back the next uh, the next session and I brought Bernie's a look back. I brought Bernie's, I told Wrights and all this. I brought a couple of his Frankenstein portfolios. I brought some of the Warren comics work and some uh, of his Swamp Thing. It's like a pretty good stack of things. And she and I really went at it. She <laughs> she could not see the value of this. She saw it was, it was, it did not change her mind at all. I now, now I'm not talking about myself. Now I'm defending Wrightson's work, mm -hmm. which I don't think needed defending. And we're going back and forth. And I'm saying to her, I can't think of anyone in your world who can do what he did in these Frankenstein pieces. Mm. I, you can't show me anyone and bring that power. It isn't about the lines. It isn't that he's illustrating a, a scene from a story. There's genuinely powerful emotion to this. Mm -hmm. And he's capturing the finest moment. I mean, that's artistic to me. You read the text, but you find the perfect shot, the perfect moment, the perfect explanation and translate all that to to some kid, uh, to some audience. She, I we're going back and forth. Anyway, as this is going on, the rest of the class is watching this, and I freely say, "Yeah, I mean, they want to know what we're talking this this work we're talking about because no one does this. You go in there, well, okay, you can talk Van Gogh." great you can talk who you know monet or rembrandt or whatever but they're pretty established and and the battles they went through to be something they weren't discussing they were just talking the end result i was talking about the battles to be something 
so some of the other kids wanted to look at the stuff oh. and I, I, I just let them go. Look, here it is. Go look. And while we're doing this back and forth, these kids are going, Ooh, ah, wow. Now they don't know comics. I mean, they're half are there cause they want to be artists half are there. It's an easy grade to them, but they're oohing and on and I can hear it. I know she can hear it. And all my arguments that would fall to the ground, I told Bernie, your image is I won. <laughs> and I said, the best compliment I had heard to this day was one of the girls in the class had been looking at his uh, one of his stories and said, I never want to see this again. Oh, wow. I don't want to see this. This is, oh my God. And she was referring to Bernie's classic Jennifer story. And she'd read it and it really horrified her. It wasn't a movie with shock things. It wasn't a someone spook and scare. Just reading it and looking at the image and the ambiguousness of Bruce Jones' story, which he nailed. And another kid was, and I just said, that's, that's what you want. You want someone... If you're doing that kind of material, say, I never want to look again. You, you're you going to make, for everyone who says that, you're going to get a thousand people who love you. <laughs> um, he, he, you know, he liked hearing this. Uh, he got quiet to hear it because I don't think he'd been told something. Well, certainly he hadn't been told something like this before. Um, and, uh, and I told him one kid was looking at a look back and he just right out of the gate said, is he still alive? And I said, yeah, he's like 30 or something. You know, he's to me, he seemed old because I was, you know, 18 and I said 30 in his 30s. He says, they make a book about someone still alive that's like this big, <laughs> all this stuff. And I said, yeah, because he's that good. Obviously, he's that good. And the guy's going, yeah, he's just flipping through it. And he was really going, and I said, look at the Edgar Allan Poe paintings. They're brilliant. I said, Edgar Allan Poe would say, that's how I, that's, ah, it's right there. So the teacher calls it, ah, I don't want to talk about it anymore. It's still everything she says. She doesn't give a damn. And she's irritated because she's seeing this reaction. Hmm. Uh, one of those weird things that happen. And I told Wrights in this too, all of it I told him, is I said, not long after that, I'm sitting there thinking should i stay or should i go because everything i want i'm still sticking to what i want to do in my finished results mind you when we'd have a figure model come in they wanted my pieces not the other kids because i was following this template of these people the not just rights but all you know all the majors but i was following that and always these models would come in and, and i remember one model she said i, I, I i've got to have this and she'd been doing it for years, never asked for a piece. And this isn't, I said, Ryzen stuff is in my head. But I told Bernie, I said, that was because of you. Huh. And it was, and I got so much from you in this brilliant work you would do that it gave me strength to fight this. I wouldn't give it up, even if it meant a grade. Um. Right is right. Good. You, you, you just, right is right. So 
Marvel out of the blue, I sent something in, forgot it had been so long, had called to hire me. And there was no greater pleasure than being able to go in and resign that class. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Very without, you know, without the schadenfreude. But I said to her, I got hired by one of these companies to do this stuff. I simply can't handle both a full schedule and a, and a, uh, trying to ink a comic book, a 30 page comic book a month. I just, I couldn't handle all that, but I told her I'm probably going to be one of the only people not in, and I mean, not teaching. I'll probably be one of the only people that will make my living with art that you will know. <laughs> wow. And I said, it's because, that book I showed you was my real textbook. A look back by Ryson was my textbook, which I still have that book. It's, I was, if I did a smart thing, I bought two of those when they came out and that, and that was a lot of lawn mowing when I was a kid, <laughs> but I bought two. One I put in the bookcase, one I knew would be battered and beaten by the time I, you know, and it is battered and beaten. Uh, so I was wise to do that, but it meant a lot to me to be able to tell her that. So you go to many years later. And when I finally get a chance to sit with Wrightson and express to him, because I was going to give him his due. He was a humble man. He didn't want to hear. I said, bullshit, you're going to hear it. <laughs> you know? And he, 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 uh, he did. I mean, he, he, he actually, when I started saying beyond that, I love you and you're wonderful. And this, I told him these kind of stories. And uh, from the influence he had on me mentally thinking out, figuring out how to do those Batman covers to is this 18 year old kid going up against this then to me, ancient 40 year old art, art teacher, professor uh, uh, with him as my arsenal. Um, The fact that, uh, uh, that kind of that kind of spiritual influence uh, was everything. So when he asked for me to do Frankenstein, wasn't like I wanted to jump at it. I'm like everyone else. I want to see him finish it. Mm-hmm. I've been following. I've been following it since his first stabs at it in Swamp Thing number three, all the way up till now through the portfolios, through everything. And basically, you know, he couldn't. He his health was giving out. Uh, it was not going to get better. So I wasn't in a position to where I felt I could say no, but I wasn't in a position where I felt uh, anything but fear. Not because of how I would look, but because I was going to lose him. I knew everyone was going to lose him. So kind of accepting the job was like accepting this. I mean, all your optimism, all your hope, all your prayers, you know, it ain't going to happen. And accepting it meant the job meant accepting this, what was going to happen. Because why Uh would he quit? I mean, this was Frankenstein was his motivator. And I used to tell him, I said, the first thing that really got me into horror was 
as a six-year-old kid watching a Frankenstein, the first Frankenstein movie on television, which terrified me, but I couldn't not stop watching it. And it was Nightmare City after that. But when I found there was another Frankenstein movie following it, I was right there, though you 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 know you have to strap yourself in um and i know it did the same thing to him a lot of people uh so i knew his connection intimately because i had that connection as you see i got frankenstein all around me still yeah. i still love frankenstein so all i all i all i could do and it was amazing was ask for what he had and they, the stuff was sent, and I could see his process from these little thumbnails to these finished masterpieces. And I wanted to see some of his finished work to see, you know, uh, you can look at a finished piece, but you still can't tell how did they do that. You want to see, did they push a line? Did they pull a line? Did they use a brush? Did they use a pen? Did they use a marker? Uh, that kind of stuff. The physical brick and mortar of this. <laughs> So I did, and I, and if I was impressed before, I was knocked out after because there was nothing left to chance. And everything he did was considered, everything he did was absolutely done with the perfect moment captured. That's, I... I can't hardly think of anyone doing this who couldn't do that, who wouldn't fall back on their own tropes, fall back on their easy stuff. Wrightson did not do that. It was cinematic. It was dramatic. It was genius. And you could see that the talent God gave him at the beginning, he had honed it and not wasted a drop of it. You know, with all of the problems he may have had, with all of the stuff that goes on in your crazy life, the work was the thing and it was daunting. I mean, it was a whole book. I thought it would, I didn't know how much he had. He, it was pretty much a whole book, some parts here, some parts there, but all of it laid out. I mean, not laid out on full pages. Some of it was, but a lot of it was just, it would be just this big, but it would have all these notes and not for me. They were notes that he wrote to himself. I don't think he was, he just had no energy left. So when I got it, it was like it w- it took me a day or so per piece to just read it and kind of soak it in and figure out how to get this either a little piece onto paper or a large piece transferred over and then think like him as best you can. And as much as I'm influenced by him, I don't think like him. Uh I think like him, I thought like him in though the large parts that mattered. Uh, Wrightson was great at ambigu- ambiguity and using lighting as composition. You know, where the light fell is what is how he did it. It wasn't where the shadows were, it was where the light was. So I was doing all of these things uh, in my head, thinking it. And then when it came to time to start, and I've been doing this a long time. It's like the first time I really froze. Oh. I'm like locked up. And I knew, and it's, and it's, I think the only time I've ever blown a deadline because I, I just could not 
figure out how to start this. I would try and I would hate it. I would try and I would feel I'm not getting it. So I had to call him and say, this is going to be a little late. And I don't mean that I, I will get it done. And so I chucked everything else I had on, on my mind. My wife, thank God knew what this meant to me and said, uh, I, she knew this wasn't like a regular job and, uh, made that a lot easier for me to spend a lot of time and just get this because it was, I do things to myself. I probably shouldn't have done. And one of them was that I thought, you know, when this comes out, this will be the last new piece of work he's going to publish. Uh-huh. And it's the, at the same time, it's also the last thing finishing his Frankenstein story. So it was the, the, the final climatic book. The final thing he would do is all this final stuff. And I was going to realize that, you know, as an artist, death isn't frightening because you know, you'll live on in your work, but for fans, it's killer that we don't see anymore. And I didn't see myself as any kind of a peer of his. I was an acolyte. And so I was totally seeing it. I'm going to lose this guy that I had in my head was going to be around another 20, 30 years making great stuff. And once I just, you know, sat down and my wife said, you know, uh, she didn't say, oh, it's an honor or any of that. She goes, you know, it's your responsibility. Uh And you got to do it. And you've got to put yourself in a good head, however you're going to do it. But you got to do his version, his view, his everything him. You're just going to have to channel that. Uh-huh. And I did. Um, I, made a, I, I made a point to uh, really just focus on that. It was right up to and around Christmas. So I worked on it from about middle of November uh, through Christmas. And, uh, it was hard. It was very hard, but the results, I, I didn't tell anyone anything other than here it is. Uh, I'll fix whatever. I'll redo whatever. Let's get it right. I told them all. And before I could really say that, when I got it back, everyone involved in this from, from his, uh, widow, who was wonderful to Steve, to everyone at IDW were coming back before I could get all of this out. And they would say, this is, is wonderful. And it brought everyone to tears because it was being finished and something they didn't think would, would happen. And they couldn't, oh. you know, personally I could, but they said they just couldn't think of anyone else. And Bernie wanted this. And, and I just said, you know, Bernie, However, it turned out, I knew that he knew I, it was all respect as much as I could make it happen. Um, it's difficult. It's like trying to mix those, uh, John Lennon songs after he's gone. You know, how do you, how did, how do you do that? Uh, you just listen to everything you go, you channel all of that fan emotion and put that in there because this isn't something that anybody can do. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I ran on fan fumes. I didn't run on professional 
um, I ran on the fact that this was his headstone to me. And that this book mattered a great deal to him. Um, the fact that he was working on it up until he absolutely couldn't. I mean, I you know, a lot of people, they got to be in the mood. Wrightson wasn't a mood guy. He was a professional. And in his head was this incredible talent. And I think I've heard it from a number of people that were associated with him through the years. He was the one guy who what was in his head got onto the paper without any loss of trans in the transmission. Um, we all try to get close. Oh, he got it. And you can tell he got it. it he, because he was more than a comic book artist and a great comic book artist. He was one of the great American illustrators. And you can go, oh, yeah, he did comics, but he was one of the great American illustrators. And I felt it very fitting that the city of Baltimore, uh, when he passed, uh, made him, gave him the honor of one of the great citizens of Baltimore. And the other person who got that, very, very few got it, was Edgar Allan Poe. Mm -hmm. And it was like, right on. If Baltimore is known for anything, it's those two guys. Yeah. And as time goes, I think 500 years from now, they'll look at Frankenstein and they'll go, what, nobody's, that was as, to me, it was as definitive as Karloff's portrayal, as what Whale and Karloff did, Wrightson did. And I always imagined the day he died, he was sitting with Mary Shelley and Boris Karloff and James Whale. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. It's, it's, it's that powerful. I mean, you go back and you look and let me tell you, we were all knocked out when it came out, but you come all these years later and it's even better. It, you just go, uh, for example, you look at any of the great Frankenstein, any of them, any of them. And there, it isn't that there's this incredibly rhythmic, sensuous line work. He doesn't lose the lighting. When you're doing all this little drawing, you'll lose the light. So this, there'll be the light source is right on this, but it's a little wrong here. It's a little wrong there, but you forgive it on, you know, it's so complicated. Never. How he kept that concentration, I don't know. How he didn't lose focus, how that piece could retain its power to the last line and not show I'm tired, I'm losing energy on this or whatever. And it's a sheer force of will. Because I, I, I don't know. I think Frazetta said it best. There's art. You can argue on who the best painter is. You can argue on who the best. There is no argument to who's the best in black and white. Huh. And black and white has always worked better for me because the artist has to put much more attention to atmosphere to it. So writes in just every level of the game. He it was the most difficult. The, the most difficulty in achieving those ends. Uh, not often that a, does the, those plates knock out really anything I'd seen painted because they were so beautiful. They're mesmerizing. And uh, you can't stop looking at them. So when he asked, uh, yeah, it, long story, that's why it was the biggest honor I ever got. Amazing. You know, I think um, what's 
like you said, you know, you come back to it afterwards, you look at it again, you know, a couple of years later. Um, and something that caught my attention this read through was uh, not just how amazing the art is. Obviously, it's just insane. Um, but the story, the specific story of it and how what the art is saying and what the story is and how this story really I love um, when Frankenstein, the creator and Frankenstein, you know, he's he's being haunted by his creator. Right. And he's he's being you're a wretch, you know, I'll I'll see you in hell. Yep. And he's explaining, he goes, you need a soul to go to hell. Yeah. I don't have a soul. And, right. he's, you know, he says something about God and he says, he says, God has nothing to do with me. You saw to that. Yeah. And it's this um, it's this amazingly powerful journey. And, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm reading it and I'm thinking about, you know, um, as Bernie's writing this stuff, what he knows about himself and what he knows about right. his own journey. And, and, right. and his ultimate well, end. You're right. Uh, I think, I think as Steve Niles told me, uh, basically Bernie told him what it was going to be. And Steve said, I'll find a way to get it onto paper. Cause Steve was like me about it. I can't believe I'm sitting with this guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bernie's thing of every step of the way, God's there. But this, this thing where God that that victor denied him god and in an odd way made him more holy you know it made the monster more holy uh it was a mirror to us brilliant how he captured it how he did it um that uh it made the religious angle uh to people stronger in its denial uh brilliant and because uh it's brilliant it's one of those stories that when you read it you go here he's putting to paper everything he felt about reading the novel and not just continuing it on with good yarn which he does but uh he he really plums the meaning of this thing uh and that's powerful stuff and uh, as always with Wrightson, you can see yourself rereading this for years to come because there's such delectable moments to go through. Yeah. Uh, I, I always felt Wrightson, I see him in my head in his studio, absolutely loving the process of doing this because while he was doing it, he was alone in this world. And I've always maintained that. I, I actually said that to him too. <laughs> Because I, I got a taste of that doing Dead Man, where I was left alone for a year. And I told him, I said, you know, I think, uh, remember we were sitting there and I said, I think one of you, probably one of your saddest days is when they were going to release Frankenstein. Because then it was everybody's. It wasn't just you with these beautiful illustrations. You'd show some friends and stuff, but everybody owns you. When it goes out, it's it's like a child. It's out. It's on its own. People have their own meanings to it. Mm-hmm. that's the way the game works you cannot get upset over that but and it's exciting I, I you know but but for me it was a sad day when i knew dead man was coming out because then this thing that was just my alone in my little room and i told him that i said uh i wasn't afraid of someone not liking it i wasn't afraid if because for that year i was given this wonderful thing and i said and here you were for five 10 or several years with Frankenstein and then you put it out and 
everything you think is now everybody else's. It's as much, it, truly, it is as much someone who lays their money down for it as your own. Mm-hmm. That's the rules. And like it, if they like it, if they don't, fair. That's the deal. Uh, people who can't handle that, they're babies. It's just the way it is. That he could do something with something as personal. I mean, as much as I love Dead Man, and it was semi-personal, but I didn't, you know, this was really personal. And this isn't something that you just, I'm going to do this. You have to, you have to really pour a lot of will into it. No one's paying you. You're taking a week from start to finish on each piece, maybe longer on some. Uh, you got to find a way to pay the bills while you're doing something you love. Um, that's that's the very heart of an artist. Uh, you don't know how it's going to go, and and it, to, I'll be honest with you, it didn't sell well when it came out. Mm. Uh, Marvel got it, and it didn't do very good business. Uh, Marvel didn't know how to sell it. Marvel didn't know how to show it. They didn't know where to go with it. Um, it was damn hard to find in a comic book store. You had to go to like bookstores and they didn't know what to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, no, I mean, uh, the way it should be, it, it subsequently has done fine, but, uh, IDW going to put it out in that big oversized edition is how you do it. You know, you do a regular edition. That's really nice for everybody. That's what they should have done. Emphasized Bernie Wrightson. And then you do a really big, nice artistic portfolio thing like the old uh, Gustave Doré uh, oversized books that they used to do in the 1800s. That's what IDW is putting together, this Frankenstein oversize. It's going to be... An art, an art event, not a comic book event. Mm. And uh, should have happened while he was alive. I wished mm. it had. But uh, again, I'm going to go back. It's what uh, artists don't don't fear death because you live beyond your lifetime with this work. Um, and like I said, hundreds of years from now, they'll. A lot of stuff will fade. This will still be around. What he did will still be around. And still be the gold standard. I mean, for for pen and ink illustration, still be the gold standard. I mean, he's Uh the finest. I feel, Booth included all of them, I think Wrightson is the finest person with pen and ink. Uh, Sheer emotion in this stuff. Not just a beautiful technique where you admire it in Booth or Cole or any of those guys, and they're brilliant, but Wrightson, and it's not even the subject matter. It's like, even if you remove the horror element of a piece or whatever, just look at how he did trees or how he did the yeah. sky or how the he lab- did furniture. The laboratory. Any of that, any of that stuff. Uh, you look at that and you go, oh, I could just look at that. You you mentioned uh, the heart of an artist, and I want to take that back to your story of this art teacher who wanted to deny the work of Bernie Wrightson and your right. own work. And it 
it blows me away because we hear this so much. We had Jock on recently and he talked about being uh, rejected from art schools. And you know, we've spoken to so many artists over the years who have these similar stories to art schools. And it's just so hard to believe that these quote artists. Well, would... look, when they, when they put, uh, when, when, when a janitor doesn't finish sweeping the, the museum and people walk up to the little pile of trash and call it art, I don't really care about their opinion anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it's bizarre how these teachers can become so married to the rules of yeah. art that they teach. They're married, that... they're married to the idea that they are more important than you. Mm-hmm. And they're married to the to their own <clears throat> voice. You have to shut up to be a viewer of art. You have to just look at it and let it take over. You have to acknowledge that maybe you don't like it, but by the end you might. Because it's a journey. It's not just here's this thing. It's a journey. Maybe you'll change your mind. Van mm-hmm. Gogh. Nobody liked it. Now everybody loves it. How did that happen? Because regular people liked it. So <clears throat> I don't I don't have anything against, but you gotta remember for me at least, um I dropped the art classes because one, yes, I got hired, but I realized I wasn't learning anything. Um, where I did learn to draw, to draw comics specifically, was from film classes. Mm. So I took film courses on film appreciation, uh, editing, making films, whatnot, never wanting to make a movie. Uh but they told stories as close to comics as I could see frame by frame, how to set a shot, how to compose, how to pick and choose what you, what, what goes on the screen. That's pretty damn close to comics. Um, <clears throat> so that's where I learned. And uh, <clears throat> that's where you could get, and, and you had, and those classes found great worth in a student film or an amateur film or an independent film right up there with Stanley Kubrick and Hitchcock and Wells, you know, they, they had equal standing to these professors. Whereas in the art courses, uh, they were full of themselves and jealousy. Certainly if they, if they're, for example, if, if jocks running into that, Oh, let me tell you how jealous are they? And I, and I'm convinced that that is, I mean, I found that back when I first went was, it just hit me in the car driving home. These people are jealous. Mm-hmm. They're not even given anything a chance, even on a technical level. Um, uh, it's, it's one of those things where <clears throat> if art is supposed to offend well, they didn't like being offended. Mm-hmm. They were offended by this great illustrative artist. Uh, look, they're still arguing over N.C. Wyeth. I mean, that's a pretty foregone conclusion. N.C. Wyeth is a genius. You know, and one of the great influencers of painters. Just his applications, 
his compositional skill. Uh, the fact that he told stories in it, then they knock him off for that. Uh, <clears throat> Monet and told stories too. You know, they don't want to hear that, but he did too. Uh, I think, I think at, at a certain time, you just begin to realize that, uh, that that's uh, in a lot of things you find there in a lot of different avenues, not just comics emperors. You, you always find the emperor has no clothes going on. <clears throat> and that's what was going on here. They clearly, this guy's a genius. They're saying he isn't. I then at that point go, okay, fine. This isn't like we just disagree. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> this is, this is a rejection based on a philosophy rather than any kind of talent skill or whatever. Um, I love an artist that changes my mind. Wrightson was the first one. First time I read his stuff, I didn't like it because it, it was disturbing. Two hours later, I have to go back because it was so disturbing. Two hours later, I go back. I'm his fan for life. Mm -hmm. And that's, the power of a great artist. Why deny yourself that journey? I think mm. some of the best, some of the best response. One of the things that you live for is when someone gets hold of you and says, man, I really hated those long damn Batman ears. And now I can't <laughs> see it any other way. You know, yeah. that cape, how does that cape work? Now I've got to see a cape that way. And I went through that period. You know, you go through that period and it's utterly legitimate. Everything people are saying is legitimate. My philosophy was, I love realism, but I'm <clears throat> bored by it pretty quickly, personally. I love interesting, though. Mm -hmm. I, I, I like realism. I love interesting. Uh, I love over the top. If, it, if, it's done, uh, if it's done with thought and skill and intent, not because you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> uh if it's done with that reason and there's meaning behind it i love it and there, there's a lot to be gained from giving something a chance even if it's not what you're used to seeing i i remember the first time i read lock and key from joe hill and gabriel rodriguez yeah uh you know at the time i wasn't reading anything else that looked like gabriel's art and I remember starting to read that, like, oh, these people all look so ugly, and yeah. you know, that's just the, the 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 style of them. But you know, by twelve pages in, you couldn't imagine anyone besides Gabriel no. drawing that book. No, and I think what happens is, look, we're in a time of I think uh, probably the most talented illustrators technical illustrators but we're in the least amount of imagination i've ever seen mm. and i think a lot of that's due to uh the, the homogenate uh, the homogenizing of stuff is probably due to people uh relying too much on computers for reference trying to map everything out, trying to do things too much without it just being pencil to paper in your head. Uh, you don't have the great sweep of style from John Buscema to Gene Colan to Jim Starlin to Bernie to Barry to you name it. 
uh, you don't have that great sweep of style like you used to. So something different is going to be even more shocking or more difficult, it would seem. But once you realize that person's communicating to you personally with their imagination, with their emotion, not just some nifty image of Batman doing something, but something personal. Uh, that's when you begin the love affair of this. Yeah. Not, not, not how technically good someone was when they're doing something, but how did they strike that chord in you? Uh, you never see John Lennon's name as best guitarist, best singer, best anything. But when it comes to whose music was the most important, it's always him. And he couldn't sing very well as they measure it. He certainly couldn't play very well as they measure it. He was very discordant in his music and didn't know how to write music. Yet, at the end of it, he's always number one and still a huge influence 50 years on. And it's because of that. There's a guy who listened to the radio and went to the record store and never went to a music class. Never, never did that. He just knew what was in his head, had to get into that tape by any means necessary. And I would put forward that any kind of formal instruction would have destroyed that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, tainted it. Yep. So... There's many ways to get to to uh, the end result. And I'm not saying education is wrong. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying in algebra, it works. This to this does that. It's a fact. And, and, and what we're doing, there is who the hell knows? It's just how do we react to something? But why look like everything else? Why do what everyone else is doing? Why be the same herd animal uh -huh. and speak to someone personally. Don't speak to other peers and say, look how good I am or whatever. Uh, speak to that person who doesn't like comics. Speak to that person who thinks they rot your brain or they're silly or whatever they are. Uh, or that comics mean a Marvel movie. Um, you do this thing and make something happen. If somebody would have told me when I started doing Batman or that they, when they gave me a Batman, I would have got to this point or it would have lasted this long or whatever. I would have said, no way, not because of some false humility. I wasn't doing it for that. And I was doing it to enjoy it that day to make my day, not boring. And when I looked at Batman books and Batman stuff, I went, well, every, I can't do it this way. One, everyone's seen it before. And what they're seeing is better than what I would do if I was trying to do it that way. So you go into it thinking, today I'll be fired, but I'm going to enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think uh, we have to worry about that at all. What I love is that, um, you know, what speaks to your talent is that we keep getting amazing stories like yours, such as this one a couple of years ago. Uh, yeah. And we went in went into great detail about that one of the last times you were on um, something that we, you know, I know we talked about the, the Bernie stuff and the Frankenstein book. I'm so yep. glad we got to talk to you about that. Now um, another book that 
I think is just phenomenal is thank you batman unseen um yes, again you. you and doug working together this book um for those who might be unfamiliar this is basically a kelly jones drawing a dracula invisible man book yeah that's kind of kind of i what... would say that's a fairly well good way to put it yeah <laughs> and uh obviously judging by the background you got frankenstein uh, universal monsters all around you sure. so I have to imagine this was quite a treat uh, of a project to do, was it? I have to say that first and foremost, the credit goes to the editor who wanted to see Batman dealing with the Invisible Man, you know? And so the editor was Mike Seglane, and he was a big, again, one of those guys who really dug old universal old hammer films those kind of things he uh he's now to uh he loved james bond he loved all the great genre things he's was a great editor at dc and he's uh now he's editing uh or head of publishing at disney lucasfilm and uh he's running all the the stuff that you know Marvel crossover into that or uh, all those cool things. But he was the one behind wanting to see this. And he knew Doug was a big fan of these old films. Uh, Specifically for me, I was a big fan of James Whale and I love the invisible man. And we, uh, so when he got a hold of me, uh, he came at me and saying, would you be interested in this? Uh, He kind of told me what it was about. I read it over. I thought it was wonderful. Um, and probably what sold me on it more than the job itself was him. And he had told me, uh, you know, when you, he, he says, I have to just say that when I first saw your work, I didn't like it. He says, I had in mind what Batman looked like. Mm. And he said, uh, it, it was very troubling to his young eyes. And he says, but after a day, he says, I kind of like this. I'll give it another shot. And then the, bought another one, another one. And finally he said, he says, so I just moved and I pretty much got rid of my comic book collection because you got to carry it up and downstairs in New York, right? You, it's difficult. So he spent a day getting rid of a lot of books, what he was going to get rid of, what he was going to keep. And he says he lost a day of moving because he came across my old Batman comics, Red Rain and the three-year run and everything. And he started reading them again. And that's where it hit, hit, hit him. Like, I, I want him to come over. I want to work with him and I want to do something scary. And I want something that's pure Batman, just a Batman story, not the huge uh, <clears throat> crisis thing, that, that this event. He's just a Batman story because that's what he was turned on to by what Doug and I had done on the monthly. It was just bare bones Batman stories. And he said, and he loved Red Rain. And he says, I just like something like that, you know. And uh, Doug delivered a damn good script, but it was a lot of fun to draw. A lot of, there's the problems of how do you draw an invisible villain and make it interesting, you know. And, uh, but I love that kind of a challenge because it meant I had to focus more on Batman and come up with neat little ideas and neat gimmicks and neat tricks and, uh, 
but I've always been, I'm glad you mentioned it. I'm very proud of that book. It's, it's a small book. It's off to the side. It wasn't one. I'm t- I tend to gravitate to Batman stories. Nobody wants, you know, that as a reader, you don't need, uh, it's not. And the Joker and Harlequin and this, and the Joker and Harlequin and that with him. It's always like, no, Batman goes off and, uh, has to fight the invisible, an, an invisible villain or, uh, Steve Niles, great Gotham after midnight stories. Yeah. They, they weren't ones you needed. They were ones that you just, if you like Batman, they're essential bare bones, Batman stories. Yeah. He's doing Batman things. He's being Batman. He's not gripped with agonies and he's not having romances. He's kicking ass. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. uh, Kings of fear did that for me. It was like those kind of stories I'm attracted to they're almost like the old independent films or the, the B films where you could uh, have your A-list stuff going on. Everything, everyone expects whatever from it, but the real interesting stuff was going on in the B films where they were, you know, making their bones and, and saying something different and saying stuff you wouldn't see. Um, and that's what I would dig. I'm, I've always been grateful that there was a place for those. I think in, in the seventies, Marvel used to have all these B level books. That's where you got Adam Warlock and Captain Marvel and uh Monster Frankenstein. All these B level books. Kill Raven was a wonderful. And they were kind of at if Marvel did those primarily to test new talent out, not in the Avengers FF or whatever. But time has been very instructive that those were the interesting books Marvel put out. Those are the ones everyone remembers and they make movies out of them. Uh-huh. Uh, I chose, I enjoyed these stories because they're eccentric as hell. They're yeah. pure eccentric. I, I know when I did uh, Unseen, I was able to just go to town on inventing little Batman devices, which you really don't see anymore. You know, I love little weird bat. He's always got, I mean, he's got a utility belt. No one ever does anything with it. I'm going, yeah, he's, he pulls that. Uh, Steve Niles totally allowed me to go to town on all of that kind of stuff. Doug Minch let me go to town on all that stuff. So, uh, and the fact that, that they didn't mind that I made the bat cave, this endless maze of rooms and chambers and vaults. Um, I, I hated one desky ghost, so I figured he's got a bunch of them. I figured he's got a bunch of different Batmobiles stashed all around Gotham. I I never thought uh, that that you should limit yourself by that because it's it's the mood strikes you. I know that drives the 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 whole notion of comics into the ground <laughs> as far as continuity and stuff like that, but. But I just like never knowing what I was going to see on a different page. And so when that would happen, uh, for me as a reader, I figured, well, I want to do that as an artist too. I mean, just for fun, just for the pleasure of it. So when I would show bizarre laboratories uh, or bizarre crime computers or some bizarre thing in there, I just took it as natural and interesting. And it made Batman more interesting to me. you know, they always labor the point that, well, he's just a regular guy who, you know, does stuff. And I go, well, he's a regular guy with this incredible amount of bizarre Gothic technology. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's this regular guy who uh, 
has to be the greatest method actor ever because he's got to go out and scare the hell out of people. Uh, and so he's got to become this thing that isn't like where you would think, oh, it's a guy wearing a mask or something. No, there's, I don't know if it's, you know, I always figured most of these guys thought he was, geez, it could be supernatural or something. So, uh, so yeah, I, I kind of go for the, uh, over the top hokey because in an odd way, it gets to the core of who Batman is better than the dreadfully serious. Um, I have nothing wrong with the dreadfully serious. It's just, there should be another, another note in that symphony. Uh, and, and that's where you can play more. Uh, and that's where you have the chance of entertaining better. Um, I don't know. Time will tell on all of that, but so far it, it's been kind to me. Yeah. I I don't think I would ever put hokey next to any of your work. Well, uh, I would never put that term next to it. I, I, I think I'll combine some of the other ones you used. I would say, uh, dreadfully sim- or s- symphonically dreadful. I don't know. If there's a, <laughs> yes. Like I look, I'll be honest with you. I have no trouble with people disagreeing with my point of view, my finished results, my art, anything. It never, never does that bother me. Uh, the only thing I ever tell people is it was meant sincerely. Mm-hmm. Whatever I do is very sincere. Never do I take it for granted. Never do I think that I'm pulling one over. Never do I think less of the audience. I'm right there with them. I just choose to enter my to entertain myself first. I don't think, how is this going to play when I'm drawing something? I don't think, how will anyone else do it? I go, well, do I like it? And before you say, well, that sounds noble, it isn't. It's pretty selfish and lazy. <laughs> uh, it's, 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 uh, it's like, you know, I make a point to live a normal life away from this. Uh, kids and wives and friends and going and doing stuff. And I never draw outside of my studio and I never talk about this outside of it. And half my friends don't even know I do this. Um, So uh, my kids didn't even know until they were 12 or 13 that I even did this. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, it was a shock to them. One, that I had a job. They thought poor mom. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But it shocked them when I went to – I decided, okay – uh, I took them to a San Diego Comic Con when they were like 13 or 14. Oh, man. And they'd never seen anything like it. And uh, obviously, they were into their stuff. You know, they liked Doctor Who or they liked video games or whatever it was. It wasn't comics. So they loved it until they saw people react to me. They That, that was weird to them. Yeah. Because I'm dad who tells them do their homework, take out the trash, feed the dog, you know, uh, and then they see this and they had no idea what I was talking about. They had no clue as to what they, you know, if they see a big line of people and you're signing stuff and you're answering questions like we are right now, they had no idea what it was. And double that, life dad. Yeah, it, it was very much like Batman. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I had a secret <laughs> identity and I let it out of the bag. But the reason I did that was one, I didn't want kids to be fans. <laughs> I wanted my uh. kids to be kids. I, you know, if they like comics, fine. I didn't keep it from them. I just never talked about it. 
Uh, I didn't keep it like a big secret or anything. I just did not talk about it. And none of my friends, they're all in the real world, right? So uh, it was one of those things. And it, so when they were surprised, they found out I did it, to be perfectly honest, I thought they knew. And mm. But that's the charm of this. And because I didn't go everywhere with a little sketch pad and I didn't go uh, like to, to, to things that would be clearly like shows or conventions or whatever, uh, this surprised them. And, uh, and I think it was healthy because I, you you know, you let a kid decide what they want to be, you know, uh, uh, what religion they want to practice, what political thing they're into, what books they like to read, what TV show, what music, whatever you let, you know, you don't want little Xeroxes. You want free thinking. So, uh, yeah, now, I mean, they're much older. They're in college and stuff. They, they, they have a, a different point of view to it now, but at the time, uh, it, it just didn't mean anything, you know, which was good for me because, because it's to bring something to my, at least how I see it. I like one little place. I do it that that's all it's for. And then right there, it charges your battery. And right there, I can be 12 year old, 12 years old again. And it's, and not be ashamed or embarrassed or self-conscious of it. But that 12 year old kid going, Ooh, what would be cool today? I have a hard time talking about myself because I'm fairly dull. If I get into that, you know, but when it gets to being a fan of something, I can babble all day. Um, because that's where I prefer to stay, professional or fan. Well, I'll take fan, not in some noble way or humble way. That's where the energy is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, 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 I've had other artist friends of mine really be defeated if someone doesn't like their work or if someone says something offhand and it destroys them and it will throw them off. And I'll say, that's silly because you're a fan of something and you don't like something. You know, it should make you stronger. And generally, people who dislike something are telling you exactly why something works. The ears are too long. Yes. (laughs) Uh, But I did it for a reason. If they ask, I'll tell them why I did it. And it wasn't to be silly. There was a real reason for it. And it came from thinking. And if they choose not to like it, God bless their hearts. Yes, you can dislike something and it's okay. Uh hopefully they'll change their mind luckily a lot of people dug it yeah and people do change their minds uh speaking of things like that it's a good example uh, i work in a comic shop and sometimes it comes up yep. uh with with your work in particular absolutely like, oh, those, those long up. ears and the giant cape and i'll say oh well you know why and then yeah. when i explain it they say oh that's really cool yeah yeah look it's it's a thing that uh it's the old hollywood thing what's worse than being talked about, uh, not being talked about. And yeah. what's worse than someone uh, having an opinion of your work? It's not having an opinion of your work. Never bore somebody. And if you do it with sincerity, the work will have a sincerity. Uh, if you do something to make someone like it, you're just asking for failure. Or what's worse, you'll be dated 
I think to this day that if I ran one of my Batman comics from 1997, it would be as brand new as the day I did it because everything does tend to look the same. I didn't. I didn't look the same then. I don't look the same now. So Red Rain still looks new. Or Dead Man certainly still looks new. Um, That was not the intent, but that's one of the good collateral things that happen when you're doing your own thinking. Yeah. I, I, I think that is why, you know, in our humble opinion, you are one of the best and one of our favorites is because your work is timeless because it is so you and some of the, some of the people who we like and the stuff that we enjoy the most, it's not, you know, it's a a lot of it. Isn't like the ongoing monthly stuff. It's the, you know, uh, mini series one shot stuff because they get to do, they get to be, you know, go on the playground and play and do their style as much as it's their style allows. and, And that's the stuff that lasts. And that's why like, that's why your stuff is debated is because it is so specifically your, your eye and uh, your style. Um, it's the, it's the best way to be. I think you're true to yourself. I, I do. I think that as time goes on, uh, they still debate Stanley Kubrick. They still debate David huh. Lynch. They still debate uh, any of these. What uh, I think lack for the, better term they call it auteur i have been described that or transgressive and i don't know how to to reconcile those things because i approach this very blue collar i didn't approach it by being auteur or transgressive or anything um i approached it in this very blue collar way because that's who was doing it that i admired uh, I was told once uh, the reason I took the monthly Batman was that I was told if you really want to get better, you have to produce a lot of work. Mm. And what they meant by that was you can't repeat your imagery. You have to come up with something new. You don't get to be tired. You don't get to be in the mood. You have to be a professional. And mm. if you can do that, get through that crucible, you will make your brain immune to, I don't feel like it today. You will be immune to a dull part of a script. You'll be immune to it because now you know how to do it. And now you say, well, how do I make this interesting? How do I bring out that emotion? How do I do that? And that came from basically those three years on Batman Monthly. That was 36 issues. I never missed a deadline. And it was brutal. Wow. And you don't get a holiday. You apologize to your wife a lot. You work through the middle of the night if that's what it takes, but you get it done. Mm. And that's for your friends that you're working with, for your editors, but also for the people who sell it, who don't want to hear, I didn't feel like it today as they miss a ship date, Mm. you know? Uh, So there's that aspect to it. At the same time, I'm going through that meat grinder. I'm trying to bring my own personal artistic sensibility. No cheating. It's got to be my way of seeing it, but done in a blue-collar professional way. I don't expect credit for that. 
That's just the nature of the beast. But that's what's going on. So if somebody would come up to me and say the ears are too long, I'd go, absolutely. But it was on time every month and you got it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and it was 36 from me, you know. Now someone will do two or three issues in a row and they have to have someone else come in and they do the whole thing. I think it, I think it harms an artist though. They don't realize it. They're not being better by spending more time. I think there's something to be said about under the gun and you have to get it done and you have to brew a pot of coffee and you have to get this stuff out. I think there's so many stories of people making greatness timelessness while there was a gun to their head. Uh, George Lucas's Star Wars came under tremendous pressure. Uh, When you're editing the week before it's going out and you're still doing the final blocking shots and whatnot, uh, and you've been doing it for three years uh, to make this deadline, uh, it paid off because he did the hard work, but he kept his own vision. And you can say this over and over and over. Uh, Hitchcock's The Birds was that way. That you just find the way to solve the problem to get the thing out that people will remember forever. But it doesn't come from, oh, we'll give you an extra year. Hmm. You, you have to acknowledge that end of it. And it is a good thing. It's just it's not for the weak. So... To be honest, if I see someone do a great job, they should do a great job if you had four months to draw a book. (laughs) (laughs) Agreed. It should be good. I don't give you extra credit for it. But when I see a guy kick ass, and he had three weeks, um, and you can't see where he cheated, and you can't see where they liked it or they didn't like what they were doing that I go salute. That's, (laughs) that's, that's, uh, that's a guy who's got it. And so I didn't have that before I took the monthly. I took it because some other older artists said that's the best way to learn. Mm. And they were masters. And I said, okay, I sucked it up, said, kiss my wife. Goodbye. and went to devil's Island. And, (laughs) And that's what, that's what does it, you know? So if someone looks at it and goes, he's being artsy fartsy. Yes. But under this very controlled treadmill where you can't, you, you just, I, I think that's, if there's a place I learned to physically technically draw, it was, here's the script. We need a cover. You got three weeks mm. and that was the treadmill. And let me tell you, I was surrounded by people saying, don't you dare be late. And if you're going to be late, you better tell us and not lie. Mm. And if you're going to be late, it better be because you had to have surgery somewhere. And (laughs) real surgery, not a toenail. Yeah. I love that, though. I'll tell you what, I thrived under it. I didn't know I would. It certainly looks like you did. How how were you at uh, keeping your deadline on your uh, Sandman work? Uh, that was, well, see, early on, they didn't, uh, they, I didn't have a, a, uh, history with DC. I'd done dead man and a few fill-ins, 
but those were fill-ins in Dead Man. In Dead Man, they'd said you got a year. So, and Dead Man was two 48-page books that I inked. So that was a full year, but there was no pressure on that. And there was no pressure on these uh, Swamp Thing fill-in and whatnot. So when I said I have no problem keeping up with this, they wouldn't believe me. Fair enough. They didn't have a history with me. And our, a lot of artists will say that, and then they don't. So I said, I have no trouble. I can keep up. You cannot go fast. I, I, I knew they couldn't go faster than me. <clears throat> and Neil was having some trouble with some uh, just writer's block. So he was turning them in later and later. And I said, that's fine. I'll talk to him on the phone. He can just tell me what he wants for the few pages here, a few pages there. And they said, well, Neil likes to work in the whole thing. And I said, that's fine. He can work in the whole thing, but he can tell me the, Hey, I, I, up to this point, this is where I'm at. And I said, and I can uh, block it out. So when I get to it, um, but rightfully so they didn't trust me until, uh, you know, you go and show them. And uh, I remember at one point they were saying, well, we'd like you to do this certain, uh, I, I forget the book now, but you're pretty busy doing what you're doing. I said, okay, fair enough. So I took, I was doing the thing I was doing for, for DC and I took a uh, Aliens miniseries at Dark Horse. One, because I love the Aliens miniseries at Dark Horse and uh Barbara Kiesel, who was my editor who hired me to do Dead Man, was working over there. It was a good story. And the other was to show DC, hey, you know what? This miniseries could have been the thing you wanted me to do. And they're both coming out now. And now they're making the money. They're, they got this book. And it's no problem. And that kind of worked. And then I said, all right. And I went and did a, a miniseries for Marvel that... Uh, Venom miniseries that did really well. And at that point they said, okay, okay, okay. You can we'll mm. trust you when you say you can do something because I was able to produce this amount of work. Um, and doing good work and, and a lot of it, I was finding that I was learning more and more. I remember doing the Venom and I thought, well, this is, uh, this is a very different story than I'm used to. Did the whole thing came out. I, I enjoyed the hell out of it. At the same time, I was enjoying doing Bloodstorm. And uh, at that point, uh, Danny O'Neill saw. I, I once sat down and I said, uh, "Well, yeah, I didn't have to explain. I would say, you know, a lot of this I'm inking myself too. So uh, that's a lot of work I'm getting done. You can trust me." And he did. He'd say, no, you're right. I'd say, I added it up. And I said, I'm not Jack Kirby, but I'm doing, you know, enough to handle a 12 issues a year. And uh, and I wasn't saying it to do Batman. I just said it like that. And then about five or six months later, he called me and said, uh, how would you like to do Batman as a monthly? And I jumped. Of course I did. Yeah. That's, that's you know, not that I'm saying that anyone can love whatever they want, but it was the New York Yankees of comic book jobs. 
over Superman, over Spider-Man, over everything is Batman. And no matter what, if you do a, a good job, and, you, and if you do a good job as a run, not a few books here, not a few books there, but a run, they'll remember you 100 years from now. Mm. It's as simple as that. True. So yeah. uh, I only asked uh, about Sandman in particular as a very not smooth segue just to sort okay. of ask with the, the Netflix series coming, do you yes. know if maybe we might see like Season of Mists or oh, something? All of it will be done. Yeah, they're going, they're going to do them in order. They're going to adapt the books in order. So the, the Seasons of Mist was, uh, and I agree with this, that Neil at the time had said he wanted it his sergeant pepper's album of the sandman because it was kind of where everything would pivot from it would set him up who he was and then where it was going to go and it was a huge epic lord of the rings story for him uh and he was right um and uh, i remember all he had was the outline for it and uh and then he had to really sit down and write these things so there's, it was, I think it's, it, to me, it was, it was my favorite run of Sandman, not because I did it so much as it was the most organic, the way I work is very organic. So there's a lot of back and forth. Um, and because he hadn't written it out, we would talk a lot on the phone and kind of come up with stuff here and there and touches here and there and whatnot. And I think that's why it, it has a real freshness to it. And and Salmon has it all the way through, but those in particular. Um, so yes, they're going to adapt them in order. Uh, it should be uh, it should be wonderful if uh, if they're adhering to adapting the comics. How could it not be? Yeah. I mean, knock on wood, people can screw it up. But I think I think as far as Neil goes, it's it's the great thing he will be known for. It's the foundation foundation rock of his of his, what he does simply because there's 75 issues of it yeah it's an enormous amount more than novels more than books or whatever it's an enormous amount of work <laughs> it was transformative to comics uh so therefore knock on wood it will be transformative to to how these things play on in other media, television, movies, or otherwise. The only way it could work is in television, I think. Yeah. It couldn't have worked as a movie. No. And it's way too much. It's a yeah. shame that they've they've uh, kind of tried to do that with other properties where they've made like a movie and it's like, no guys, like it's been proven, like do it like a, a series, you know, let let yeah. let it breathe. So Yeah. And especially especially something as convoluted, complex and personal as this. Uh, but yes, there's certain things that, uh, yes, the, 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 uh, Lord of the Rings worked because they gave Peter Jackson nine hours. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And, and he, like Lucas developed his own special effects studio to handle it. Uh, that, that's the exception to the rule on these things yeah 12, 12 hours if you uh, count the extended edition it never ends i think they're still making them aren't they yeah yeah putting them out a little bit more this one's got uh, an extra three hours yeah but it's wisely why amazon in in doing more tolkien are saying hey let's do streaming instead let's do mm -hmm. television instead because it is too big so i think the sandman works in that same regard yeah because mm -hmm. you don't have to lose anything like even with those no. 12 hours of lord of the rings movies there are still Right, and, and you have to remember that are, that are where I think uh, 
where they're wise to do this is whereas we all know this, the rest of the world does not know this. They know Superman or they'll know the Avengers. They know Thor. But Sandman's this tiny little niche thing off in the corner, which is what it should be. And it's highly unique, eccentric, whatever you want to call it. So it should be. So you won't have this huge money thing writing on it, you know? And it should be something that, as the comic did, I think they should shoot for the same thing in the series, that it grows as it goes. Mm -hmm. Because it really didn't take off. It did well. It got good stuff in the comic, but it didn't take off until seasons. That's when I I saw it go from uh, friends of mine who ran stores, they'd sell 30, 40 copies to 600 copies. And they just saw this explosion happen where they were, uh, I had friends in the Bay Area saying they, uh, at that time it went from, uh, and I believe this, it went from these 30, 40 copies a month, which was good for something no one knew what it was, to X-Men level. And that that's because this thing took its time, stayed true to itself, didn't go and try to be like other comics and have, you know, big fight scenes and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it let, it let its emotional moments be different. It's tropes be different. And it took time for people to, to understand that and accept it. Mm. Uh, I mean, the, I remember a breakthrough book was the cat issue. And if somebody would have said, Hey, the breakthrough really, as they were looking at it, DC, was the cat issue of all issues and he's not even in it but people were buying that book to give it to friends to say give it a shot that's what they found in their marketing and he's not even in it i think he's some glowing eyes at one point uh, a sand cat but he's not in his typical leather and big hair and looking like robert smith uh it was it was a very different book to get excited about. And I think that was, uh, I mean, my attraction to drawing the cat issue was because he wasn't in it. And that's a challenge to an artist. How do you make it really cool? I think it's the single most Sandman-ish feeling book. And he's not even in it, but his influence is everywhere. And what he means is everywhere. And the whole point of what he is, is in that book. Um, and it's brilliant in that you are telling a tale through non-human eyes non-human words that that's a brilliant move by gaiman to use different adjectives uh, you can't say night the the that something's uh the weather is uh, sharp as a knife it's so cold he had to say uh winter sharp like you know he had to come up with different terms and i remember him saying that that at first he thought he wrote himself into a corner and then he found he enjoyed it how would a cat describe the weather mm. We know how we would, but how would a cat? Uh, that What do cats dream about? Well, that's a great punchline at the end. Huh. and But it's pure Sandman. And that Sandman lent the same level of attention and respect to anything that dreams. Because that's his domain. And cats dream. That was great. And so, of course... You could hand that to someone and knock them out. What else can they? What else are they going to do? Um, wonderful. 
Mm-hmm. And the the comic overall, Neil Sandman overall, it's crazy how big it became and how it took over the Sandman character because it was given to him and they basically said, okay, do something with the character Sandman and he completely reinvented the character. Right. And it right. took over that identity to the point that they retconned the previous characters named Sandman to have been part of the history and it all, you know, tied into it was it was a great period at DC because it was the Wild West and none of us knew that then. And I was allowed to do what I did to Dead Man. Nobody said anything, no pushback, nothing. It's like, yeah, keep doing it. Neil did what he did. Uh, you would have people coming up and doing all kinds of very unique, eccentric personal things with these major characters but in those days the buck stopped with that line editor so if you wanted superman carlin called the shots on whatever happened with superman not not warner bro not somebody else uh denny called the shots on batman uh when i screwed around with dead man nobody blinked uh that was kind of what you were expected to do and uh, rather than write a book that he wasn't f- comfortable with, he wrote one he would be. And that was my thing was, I can't draw like Neil Adams, so I'm going to draw a dead man the way I do. Because I can't draw like him. Mm-hmm. Um, I would rather have Neil, you know. So when that is going on, and that kind of attitude, I mean, I can tell you right now, those Sandman books, my Red Rain books and my Dead Man books still sell like crazy in the reprint trade stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's because that element, and I'm sure what it is for the other guys too, uh, that came through that period. But I think the reason that is the case is because that was the attitude then. The editors were saying, well, God damn it, entertain us. Show us what you got. And these editors had done it before and were doing the same thing. Archie Goodwin did Manhunter with Walter Simon Simonson. There's genius. Denny and Neil doing the uh, Green Lantern. Uh, so when you would go up to these guys, they had done it and they were encouraging it and they wanted to see it. Um, it's not the same now because a lot more there's other influences. So can there be another Sandman? Well, you got to have someone come in there who already has the weight and the gravitas for it. But Neil, nobody knew who the hell he was. Nobody knew who the hell I was. So that end of it, I don't know. I don't know if they would trust it now. But back then, it was brand new, undiscovered country. And everyone was going and looking for that next place to be comfortable and happy and show what you were all about um and that that end of it well you kind of see it now going on in independent comics i think yeah uh independent comics are doing that yeah there, there's a lot of great stuff that comes out there yeah, and i think, I think, the success, I think the success of smaller publishers really leads the big publishers to to trust more of that stuff. Well, I think, yeah, but, but trusted in the sense that they're going, we want a piece of that action. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's really what it comes down to because if they thought that way, they'd be doing it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not one of those guys who criticizes. I just go, 
everyone finds something comfortable and they want to keep doing it. Uh, they don't want to go to work every day saying, oh, I got to climb that mountain again. They want to find something that works, a template that works and do it. And I have no problem with that. Um, I, though, would always want to reserve the, the, the idea, though, that you want to keep everything um, uh, with possibility. And you go into it with the idea that not ev- you just there's no way to know. Nobody knows anything. So a Sandman can happen. Not because they sat around and said, we want a Sandman. It just happened. Because somebody said, I can't really write it that way. I'll, let me try this. And they said, okay. Um, that I don't think really exists anymore. I think the attempt to do things can be there. But it's going to have to come because there's pressure that the independents are sucking up all the juicy good ideas. Mm. So they're going to have to get back to that. Mm. Uh, DC, DC, I think in the late eighties and certainly in the nineties was masterful at that. They, they just attracted all different kinds of people to do stuff. It it was heavily influential to other publishers like dark horse. Uh, They started saying, okay, well, we'll try that too. And look for kind of more eccentric or more, personal things and and you could see that happen um and like i said the long the long-term effect that i see is that uh uh these things just sell like crazy in trades i i'm stunned and i think how much stuff is coming out and how much stuff has been produced since that time is still coming out and these are still the big money makers at dc Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so it it does speak well to the time something did wonderful did happen at that time not better i'm just saying talent is talent it's just you you want to cultivate that field to be able to produce that kind of work and uh i think the independent stuff uh the nature of it of of social media has opened the doors to people self-publishing and you can see to enormous success to where sometimes they're outselling Marvel and DC. Mm-hmm. That's a wake up call. Mm-hmm. And we all win the, the readers, I, the fans yes, we win. Yeah. So I, I want to win that way. Yes, absolutely. Um, that's powerful. And that's, so whenever what people say, Oh, the Marvels aren't selling so well, and DC's not selling so well. Comics are selling fine. Yeah. Okay. Uh, people will learn who run it. Like, okay, what do we got to do? I would just always hire people who had made them to be in charge of them. Uh, mm-hmm. People who know what they're asking and what they're not. I if it, I would never change anything. If they put me in charge of it, it would never be, oh, this story or that story. I don't care about that. All I would do is say, I want people to sign up and do a year of a book. That's all. I don't need to sign them to not go work somewhere else. No, work wherever you want. But if you're going to work here and you're that, I want you to sign up for a year and see what happens. Because out of the collaboration with a writer and an artist and an inker and a colorist, the letterer, good stuff happens that you didn't plan on at the beginning of that journey. Hmm. Something fabulous will come out of that. It certainly did for me and I was not unique. It was happening to the other guys I knew. 
when I was doing Batman, it was Doug and I and John. Uh, Greg Wright, Todd Klein, and everybody would it we would where we started and where we ended were two different places and it was wonderful but the same thing was happening with chuck dixon and graham nolan it certainly was happening with alan grant and neil or uh norm brayfogle so they were doing the same thing so it was just the way you do it uh this organic thing was happening and they were all producing and it's a good competition they're getting done on time they're doing their stuff they're making their dream happen we got to keep doing it too uh beatles heard the who do tommy did uh bob o'reilly or any of that stuff and they felt and paul mccartney loved it and said i'm gonna write uh helter skelter i can do a loud who song too and that's good competition and that's what we were all under because we're all productive and you're all waiting to see what you can do. Um, that's what I would bring back. Not you have to do this. You have to do that. I want to see this, the, the whatever, the, just do that. And you get a strong creative base and you get great stories out of it. Mm-hmm. A lot of experimentation comes out of that. You know, uh, for example, Doug Mensch wanted to write one shot stories. And I thought, yeah, that's really cool. And he said it would hone us down. It would focus us on what we're doing. But it also commercially was easy for someone buying it to say, hey, just try this issue. You don't have to read 70 years before and you don't have to follow it and read other books. Just this issue. And if you like it, then you might want to buy it. That was his idea. Yeah, that's something that a lot of the smaller publishers are doing a yeah. lot right now, too, is, you know, you you don't have to jump on board with, you know, you don't discover a comic like, oh, it's already at issue 83. Oh, do I have to have read the first? Yeah, 82? I think I think you can have connective you can have connective subplots, but the story should be quick and to the point. And that way, when you have something epic happen, it means something fundamentally. Mm. But if you're having a book, like if you knew that you're going into buying a $4 book and you only had to read two or three of them and then there's on to the next thing, you're not feeling the bite of that so much as, Lord, I have to read 12 of these and they're tied to something else over here that's several. And that. then you're starting to go, that's going to be $180. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. tough. So if, 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 you're, if you're just coming to it saying, well, it's only $12, I can do that. And, and yeah. it works well when it comes to uh, the collected editions, too. Well, yeah. and collected editions, you want to mix it up. You don't want, when when you start something at a, tw- a six or 12 issue thing, everyone knows whatever's going to happen is going to be in the sixth issue, so they'll wait. Yeah. But if you're just writing organically, drawing organically, creating organically, and it comes to, well, it's uh, three issues, two issues, seven issues, whatever, well, then it's going to make the collected editions more interesting. Mm-hmm. Because then they're going to have to how to combine this, uh, how to put it together. But that should be a secondary concern. The first concern is does the monthly work? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's just to throw off the readers. That's just simply to throw off the readers. 
Is there anything uh, you've read recently that uh, you would suggest people check out, uh, particularly uh, something for this time of year? Uh, there, there's a couple of things. They're not new, but they're new to me. <laughs> so it's new. But uh, there's there's some pretty terrific, uh, especially for Halloween, uh, there's some pretty terrific short stories. I just finished reading from a uh, uh, two different writers. One, uh, both of them are gone, but they're really good. And one is from a collection. And you can find these short stories certainly uh, in cheaper venues. I found one called uh, Mergenstrom by the writer Hugh Cave. And it is as good a vampire story as I've read. It's a short, not a short story. It's probably novella length, but it's a collection of horror stories he wrote. And uh, he was a pulp writer. Uh, he wrote a lot of different stuff. Uh, it, In reading it, I found myself as we were kind of the theme is stuff not dated. This wasn't dated. And I can see when I read it, I went, boy, a lot of other people read it and used it later on. <laughs> uh, it's it's one of the most inventive, amazing vampire stories I've ever read. And it, like I said, it's called Mergenstrom. Uh, wonderful. Um, cannot recommend it enough. Uh, another one. Uh, and and he had written. Uh, it's a great story. It has an awful title, but it's wonderful. They're a collection of short Again, uh, the subject being vampires, not that I intended it to. It's just these struck me. Uh, there's a writer by the name of R. Chetwind Hayes, and he wrote a great book. Uh, well, not a book, but a collection of his stories um, called Looking, uh, Looking for Something to Suck. And it's got an awful title. But these short stories, these short horror stories of vampires are incredibly good. That's something I would I would say in both cases, but the Chetwin Hayes is boy, that would make a great Netflix or Prime ongoing streaming where you just you could just do those. They're stunners. They're really, really frightening. And they're so original. And they're funny and they're scary and they're everything. And I did not know how good this guy was. Uh a lot of his stuff was adapted for film and television. I didn't know that. And I just read them and they were great. Uh, but I think for Halloween, they're terrific. And those are very affordable. They're in a, a great book. But how do you go wrong with a book called Looking for Something to Suck? <laughs> right. Um, or a movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, but they are, they are A plus horror stories. A plus. Gotcha. And, and I have uh, nothing, nothing but praise for them. Beautiful. Um, we want to be respectful of your time, of course, and we know you are a busy man. Before we go, have you seen the latest trailer for the new Batman that is uh, coming out next year? Yes, I have. And I know there's a lot of people who are, there's a big debate over the whole thing. <laughs> I, I look at it this way. Um, uh, the art of the trailer is lost. They either tell you too much or they don't show you what the point of it is. Uh, so it's hard for me to say I like a trailer or not. Mm. Uh, I, trailer did it right. I think uh, the trailer for the for Dune got it right. The first one I saw where they used a Pink Floyd song in the background. Mm -hmm. That got it interesting because 
I know a lot of people who didn't wouldn't care either way. They saw that, they go, wow, that's a good trailer. But that was the exception to the rule generally with trailers. They just give too much away or they they miss the point. So I'm very uh, trailers have now returned to that point that uh, in the old days they used to sell a picture well. I think they had different people doing the trailers too. There were whole divisions of film companies that just had guys who did trailers. They didn't bring in the auteur director to do it. He should stay mm-hmm. away because generally the director will pick the stuff that isn't interesting or misses the point or doesn't make you excited to see it. So when I saw it, I went, well, that's not a good trailer. So I don't know mm-hmm. if it's a good film. Mm-hmm. Uh, the trailer was fairly made you not want to see the movie. Uh, I think the Eternals trailers are awful. I don't know who's doing those. Uh, is it serious? Is it just, it's like, they don't know either. So <laughs> they, they, they do the opposite of where you go. Oh, I'm interested enough to look at the trailer. Cause I'm kind of, in, so I don't know. So it's a bigger question. Did I like it or not? I hate trailers right now because they're, mm. they, they, so I, now they it, it, actually, it's probably, they're smarter than me. It forces me to go see it now. Cause I got to see, is this really, <laughs> Uh, am I going to like it or not? Because the trailer is worthless. I know a lot of work went into it. I know they, they said a lot of stuff. If the movie sucks, it sucks. Then I won't see it again. You know, they won't get, I'm terrible. I'm like this, the new Dune movies coming out. This is what a trailer did. And I like the David Lynch Dune, and I like the sci-fi Dune. I'm sorry. I liked them. They, it's a huge book. It's very, very philosophical has a lot of action that's off screen so that are off book off you'll hear about it before or after but i think that's great for films because that means a director can really do something we'll show that you know i'm big on that i think that's great uh but i had no real interest in this though i liked the director and i really was impressed with uh the the blade runner sequel i thought god that's just as good as the original to me um so when they said they were doing it, okay, uh, it's kind of hard for me to, to what it more can they, you know, but then I saw the trailer and I went, wow, that's, that's pretty good. The casting looks great. Uh, they're not making a funny hip movie. Uh, they're making the book, which is huge and wonderful. It, it is the science fiction version of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, and for me, it's just the one book. I know they wrote 400 others, but that's the one. And, uh, the, 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 the trailer knocked me out. And then the use of a Pink Floyd song as a chorus knocked me out. Sometimes a trailer can be the opposite way around. There was a show on Netflix that I saw a trailer for, uh, about, you know, like these people on, on an airplane. And then before they get off the airplane, like, there's some time travel thing where they miss like five years and then they yeah. show up and everyone's baffled. The trailer was really good. I was like, oh, I, I, I got to watch this. So I started watching it. I watched, you know, maybe four or five episodes or something. Okay. This really isn't good. And I just yeah. stopped watching yeah. it. But then like a couple of weeks later, I saw the trailer again and I thought, oh, that looks good. I got to watch it. And I had to remind, no, no, it was bad. Don't watch it. The trailer was just too good. And that's, that's where you give the people who do the trailers a raise, yeah. <laughs> you know, because, yeah. That's their job is to hawk it. So yeah. when I saw the Batman one, I go, what are they doing? You know, and fundamentally, I think a lot of people are having trouble. Oh, my God, they're doing the origin again. 
How many times have they done the origin now? But that all said, I'm in. I'll, I want to see it. I just, I just now I'm not trusting trailers. Yeah, mm. yeah. And, it's uh, you. You are correct. In um, a lot of times, people don't want to see anything to do with even like screenshots or uh, you know uh, articles online because of how much it gives away. Uh, and it's look, like, I'll be honest. It's very funny. In the old days, and old days, uh, people always say that, and then make themselves sound like grandpa. But I used to get to the movies early. I was I was yeah. an asshole. We have to get to the movies early so I can see the trailers. Right? I want to mm-hmm. see the trailers. Yeah. Now I've turned it to one. Okay, I know the movie starts at 1.30, which means I can be there at 2. So I can miss all these awful trailers that either make me not want to see it or tell me way too much and I don't have to see it. And I'll be done with it. So I've, I've done that where I go, oh, 1.30? Okay, I get to the theater and... I just sort of hang around until I hear all the ruckus start and it gets quiet, and then I go in. Because now you can record, you can you can order your seat where you sit. You don't have to worry mm-hmm. that. Way. So I do that because I found that a lot of times I sit there, and these trailers are so awful that it makes me. It takes ten minutes into the movie for me to get that bad taste out of my mouth. So I just avoid trailers. <laughs> and now the chairs are so comfortable in theaters. Oh my you know, they God. have like these leather chairs that recline, and if oh you're God. watching twenty minutes of bad trailers, you might yeah. take a nap. It's like a- you you do you do. Uh, and in, if you go to the really fancy ones, you hit a button and they bring you a drink. So that's yeah. it's getting to the point where, you know, I want to rent one as and live there. I mean, uh, <laughs> but it is it is one of those funny things that that, uh, you know, I look because people as and maybe I'm from a different position on this. They get really upset with the ear length in these movies, <laughs> they really, <laughs> you know, and I like, you know, I. I don't look at it that way. Oddly enough, I do it, but I don't look at it that way. I just look, do they get the the character down to me? Um, and if they can do that, I can forgive however goofy they dress him. If they get the character down. Because uh, fundamentally, I have a problem if he's in daylight a lot or if he's in bright places. That's just me, though. Mm-hmm. I was I always figured he's a silhouette or a shadow. He's he doesn't want to give himself away too much because he's the a creature of shadow. Mm-hmm. That's that's his trick. That's his superpower. So if he's in the day a lot, it, it loses its luster. If he's in bright light a lot, it loses its luster. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether people liked or disliked, for example, the Nolan films, I liked him because he was in the shadows all the time. He didn't present himself so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, they made a real point of showing him being different as Bruce than Batman. That that I like because that is a weird thing to do. I mean, let's just be honest. Dressing up like that is a weird thing to do. Yeah. But his motivation is the reason he does it. So before people make fun, yeah, that's a weird thing to do. His motivation is there. But Nolan always kept him in the dark. And, uh, and, the, and, and the... kept him that way. That was That works for me. And yeah, there there is that uh, people talk about that that weird uh, Bruce Wayne would rather uh, put on a costume and beat up criminals than than go to therapy. Uh, there's an interesting thing though. There's a comic that just started uh, being written by Mattson Tomlin, who is the screenwriter for this Matt Reeves Batman movie. Yeah. He's writing, uh, I think it's a three issue Batman comic, right? And it uh, 
he does tackle that uh, yeah. the, the therapy thing. So that's an interesting thing. Yeah. See, I always thought he was completely normal. Yeah. <laughs> I I thought he I didn't think he need I didn't think anything like that. I think he got over it. He just didn't want it to happen again. Mm-hmm. And and he had the means to do it. Right. And and it's uh, as Bruce Wayne, he can only do so many things legally. Whereas with Batman, he kind of jumps into the realm of he can do anything. So, you know, it allows him to it allows him to be the extension of, you know, he goes beyond the law. He goes beyond the boundaries of what man allows him. And, and that's kind of like what he does at well, night. He's just, he's to me, he's just as awful as Joe chill. He's breaking the law. He's breaking your constitutional rights. He's doing everything wrong. Mm-hmm. I yet still agree with him. That's, <laughs> that's the thing. So, so what makes it even better is he's so good at this compelling at this right in this, that he can convince the one, the one guy in Gotham who has his ethics and morality and Jim Gordon. Yeah. To break the Fourth Amendment every time, you know that I dig. Uh, the fact that that Jim Gordon agrees with this bizarre thing legitimizes Batman, and it also shows that Jim Gor- Gordon wouldn't work with the crazy guy who needs therapy. <laughs> now, Jim Gordon is the guy who says he's getting the job done. I, in fact, uh, in Kings of Fear, I made a point that we that where I explained it was. Initially, I always wanted this in the regular Batman run because I used to think, well, you have to explain some of this, but I don't like explanations that are like Batman weeping or Batman upset or Batman. No, it's it's from another point of view. And we did we were able to put it into it. But essentially what it was is that Gordon goes along with it because when when obviously they arrest someone and bring someone to justice, 98% 98% of them run right back out and go do it again. Mm-hmm. Okay. And there's no, there's only the law enforcement part, but there's no other thing to, to turn these people's lives around because Gotham's the way it is. But when Batman brings in, and I'm not talking to crazies, but when Batman brings in a regular criminal or stops it, it's 98% don't ever do it again. And it's that kind of result that Gordon, who's at the point of frustration, will... It doesn't end with Batman bringing him in there. He's got to forge and fake the paperwork. <laughs> you know, he's got to say, here's how we got this chain of evidence. He's got to do that. Mm-hmm. So he's breaking the law every bit as much. But it comes down to this. And 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 if Batman brought in jaywalkers, he wouldn't do it. If Batman brought in people who were cheating on their taxes, he wouldn't do it. He's bringing in people who are on their way to being Joe Chill. That's the stories we didn't tell because we're spending it on Joker and Harlequin and all that. And that's fine. But if you do the occasional, like Doug used to do brilliantly, the crazy mailman. And you do the occasional one, the guy who is... That terrible. I mean, it was another one of his H.G. Well thing, uh, the one where this terrible guy does things to this gorilla to make it intelligent and do shit, which was his H.G. Wells, Edgar Allan Poe. But those stories where you stop them before they get out of hand, these one shots. And that's all I wanted was like, will you explain what Gordon's is? 
And so if Gordon is working with this guy, that man's perfectly fine upstairs. Hmm. And nice. That's kind of to me, and also that's an easy, that's an easy thing to do. Always tortured, or always, I, yeah, he's not tortured. He's not capable of doing at eight years old what he wished he could have done. Hmm. And he doesn't go into why did Joe Chill do this? Why I'm this way? Who cares? He doesn't want a little kid to go through this. There. Yeah. That's it. Now tell stories. Now we know why he does it. He doesn't live there all night dealing with it. He doesn't need uh, Alfred to console him every night. My Alfred never did. He was like pretty hard on him. Like, you know, I always saw Alfred as the guy who was going to let this go on until he felt Batman was putting himself at risk. He was getting too old. It was not keeping up. I mean, it's like an athlete. You're going to have a great athlete, but how long do they really have if they're playing a game? Eight years? Mm-hmm. So you mm-hmm. think in terms that's that's what he was doing. And if it was to inspire something, inspire others to to do whatever. That Okay, you, you, you're not good at, expire, at inspiring when you're nuts. So uh, because it's got to last longer than him. That's how I always saw it. And that's – so we would put these – I – insisted on putting these little things in there probably could have made a bigger deal out of it as a story but you don't want to bog it down you know you want to get to the good stuff yeah well kelly thank you so much um it's always i know and and i always feel bad how long we keep you but hey if if you let us we'll keep you another four hours so (laughs) um I mean, we'll, we'll let you next time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but it's it's always an absolute pleasure. Uh, this has been an awesome tradition that we get to brag to our friends that that we've kind of been able to do now with you. So, of it's course, a lot we, of fun. yeah, it is. It's amazing, and and I love the fact that we pepper it in a lot with. Yeah, we talk about Batman. Yeah, we're a Batman podcast, but there's so much more that you've offered. Um, Batman is like the icing on the cake. So. We love talking about all the other things that you love and that we love and that have inspired you and that you inspire. So, um, you know, we'd love to have you again next year and uh, we appreciate all the time you spend with us. And uh, thank you so much, you know, just for just, just your time and your passion. Thank you very much, guys. This, this is a lot of fun. I look forward to it too. And it, it's a, it's one of the standout things of the year for me to do too. So I'm right back at you. I enjoy this. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm writing down that quote and showing it to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> enjoy your holidays. Enjoy the Halloween. Happy Halloween. And uh, and we'll see you out there. Uh, enjoy Dune. And hopefully the Batman movie will be good. All right. Thanks, Thanks Kelly. Kelly. Thanks, Kelly. All right. All right. Thanks, Bye. Have a good one. Bye.